Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and my dream is that any child in America can grow up to be an astronaut married to a stripper. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, I'm fine with you side seat driving. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of classical realism and territorial morphology. Today, we'll be talking about the classic big dumb movie, Independence Day. So big, so dumb. So big and so dumb. Uh, so classic also. In the yeah, next few yeah. weeks, we'll be celebrating Emmerich Airy, which obviously spans mid-January to mid-February. Of course. On our agenda are Stargate, The Day After Tomorrow, and... Moonfall. <laughs> there we go. Thank right. you. Thank you. That's all I ask. And if you haven't yet, please consider becoming a patron. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash space the nation also you could support the show by rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts or tell your friends and neighbors dan how else might they get in touch with us well you can always reach us on twitter i am at dan dresner she is at Anne marie cox dan when's the last time you saw independence day <laughs> besides for for this podcast i think it has been a while actually uh i, I think independence day qualifies and i i don't know if it's still the case but like you know the category of movies you would like back in the days when you would flip channels and you would yeah. stumble across it on like tnt or tbs that's when i would watch it usually you know and, and so as a result i have not done that in quite some time what was your feeling about independence day prior to this rewatch oh my feeling prior to this rewatch was i you know it was always that i enjoyed it it was Weirdly, given that it's a movie about near the near destruction of the world, inoffensive <laughs> fun um, is is the way I, I kind of thought about it. There is a energy to it that I had always enjoyed. And also, I think one of the things I remember about this film back in the day on it, because I'm old enough to remember this, is that this was one of those films that had a trailer that premiered in the Super Bowl. Yes. Like six months before it went. And like I remember that trailer capturing my attention because the trailer showed none of the actors in it. It just showed... New York, I think, and uh, Washington being destroyed. Oh, they blew up the White House in the Super Bowl ad. Yeah, exactly. That's actually and part of the story of the movie is it was considered pretty controversial at the time, Dan. Right. And so that grabbed my attention. And like, I don't, and so I, I definitely wanted to see this on the big screen would be the way to put it. What about you, Anna? Yeah, it was a, it's a, a cable watch. I don't know if I'm yeah. trying to think of a good term for that, like when you're flipping channels, a flipping channels watch. It's a convenience uh, film. Convenience film. That's a good one. That's, a, that's, yeah. if it, you'll eat it if it's there. Like mm -hmm. if, if someone puts some chips in front of you, you'll eat mm -hmm. them. If someone mm -hmm. puts this movie in front of you, you'll watch it. Oh, yeah. And I've always had, I guess, a softer spot for it maybe than you. I'm a big fan of big, dumb movies. And I've realized we've come to a place in our culture where there aren't as many big dumb movies as there used to be. Like there really oh. aren't. Like there's there's tentpole movies and there's endless sequels, but like a true huge dumb movie, like that's it's like Tomorrow War. Like Yeah. Or I was thinking Godzilla versus Kong, but even that's part of a larger intellectual property thing. But yes, the Tomorrow War the Tomorrow War is the one that that I think most is the most similar to this. That's like, a, that's a like fair way of putting going it. out on a limb with a big dumb idea. You know, <laughs> like not doing like, you know, endlessly recycled IP, but just like we have a big dumb idea and we're going to make It's an original it. script, Anna. I mean, you know, <laughs> there is no denying that. In fact, it was big well, enough so that it could be original. Yeah. Original, it should be said in quotes yes, because, dear yes. God, this film rips off of it. Right. I, the, of the movies that we have talked but, about, 
The one that this reminds me the most of is Event Horizon. Yeah. What does they say? Like, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. And I guess this movie doesn't steal from the best. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, anyway, Dan, I think people probably already have a really good idea of why we're talking about this movie. But do you want to get into specifics? I am happy to. There there are several reasons. First of all, let's be honest. The Expanse took a lot out of it, right? That sixth (laughs) season, we were both worried about whether it was going to stick the landing. There was a lot of stuff going on. We had to make sure that the episodes were available, you know, in time for our listeners. We needed something of a break. Mm -hmm. And and God knows this is a break from (laughs) the the kind of caliber of sci-fi that we got with The Expanse. We are obviously prepping for Moonfall which will be coming out in theaters in February and is the latest Emmerich film. And so it's, it's worth deeping, diving into the oeuvre to, to get a, a better sense of that. This might be the most 90s sci-fi movie in existence. Anna. Except that was for the other... other Emmerich movies from the 90s, I would say. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And I will say this, like, I like good, bad, dumb movies, Otto, yeah. but I think, like, compared to, between this and Armageddon, I prefer Armageddon, I guess. I like them really, really dumb. Maybe that's the Okay, that's, I, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, interesting. Maybe we should also do Armageddon. I, oh, thank, <laughs> yes! Thank you. You have that, listeners. You have heard that. She has acknowledged we should try doing Armageddon at some point in 2022. I'm very excited about this. Finally, the 90s disaster films that have been neglected in our <laughs> pop culture will get, will get the space the nation treatment they deserve. But let us get to the story behind the story, which I'm legit kind of curious about, Anna. So... Tell us a little bit about this, particularly because this is the start of Emmerich, Harry, of of Roland Emmerich celebration on Space the Nation. What do you got for us? Well, first, I, I, as usual, have too much. And so (laughs) I'm going to try to hit the high points. But good news for listeners. This episode is also going to inaugurate our newsletter. And the main reason the newsletter exists is for me to put the research I didn't get to talk about into some kind of like content that is theoretically monetizable, I guess. <laughs> yay, so, capitalism. Yay, capitalism. It's, well, we live in it, you know. But I am going to try to hit just the high points here. And I also have given myself a little bit of a structure that maybe we can use from here on out to, to keep things moving along. Oh, okay. So first of all, it was released on July 2nd, 1996, a day earlier than had planned because people were so fucking psyched about it that <laughs> that Super Bowl ad like really did like wet everybody's whistle. People were lining up around the yep. blocks. There's, you know, buzz was really high. So it actually was released on the day that the plot starts in the movie, mm. July 2nd. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 68 percent out of 77 surveyed critics and the average rating is six and a half now i would also say one of the reasons that we're doing this is emmerich Gary, and it, it is like a calling card of sorts right for emmerich it's his signature success it is the movie it is not his first movie it is his biggest success probably of all of his films just sort of mm-hmm. w- within the context of movies only you know like or you know box office only like what it was competing with all of that and you could argue that this movie is why he's able to make Moonfall, you know, 25 <laughs> years later. It's true, like, because it was, it yeah. was, at the time, it became the second most profitable film ever during the 90s, like, only beaten by Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. It was the highest grossing film of 1996, ahead of Twister and Mission Impossible. Uh, it was also considered and is considered kind of a turning point of the Hollywood blockbuster, the kind of event movie, large-scale disaster movie. Some people also say it was the sci-fi resurgence 
of the mid nineties. I uh, don't know if I agree about that. Let's not go overboard <laughs> here, Anna. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, in sort of techie circles, I guess um, it's special effects are considered pretty spectacular and uh, kind of a high water mark for that era of special effects. The, the white house destruction was both controversial at the time and also yeah. considered like one of the best uses of miniatures in that kind of scene, you know, mm-hmm. in moviedom. So the script came about in part because while promoting Stargate, Emmerich was asked if he really believed in aliens. And I think he said no, but he said something like, imagine if it wasn't like the we come in peace thing that we now imagine, but they just came in huge fucking spaceships to destroy us. I don't think he used the word fucking. But anyway, ooh, idea. So he and Dean Devlin went to Mexico together and to quote Wikipedia, they had a Mexican screenwriting binge, Dan. So that binge uh, certainly was probably fueled by creativity, among other things. <laughs> other C words. Other C yes. words. It lasted yes. three and a half weeks. And according to Emmerich, we wrote that script in three and a half weeks. It was never changed. Not a word. <laughs> I find every word in, in those three sentences believable. What about you, Dan? <laughs> That's entirely plausible, given given this rewatch. Yes, yes. I don't doubt that they did not change a word. Yes. and. And did not have any studio notes whatsoever. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a little bit on the casting. The role of Hillier was originally offered to Ethan Hawke. Would have been a very different movie, I think. Especially because, as you said when we were talking about this, one of the redeeming you know, aspects of this movie is Will Smith's performance. Like, If oh. you like this movie at all, one of the reasons you like it is Will Smith. He's so. easily, yeah, absolutely. And... Will Smith being such an important part of the film is especially interesting because they had to fight to get him. There weren't a ton of African-American action hero stars happening at the time. And Devlin Emmerich had to fight for him. They wanted him after seeing him in Six Degrees of Separation, which, you know what? I'm never going to say Emmerich doesn't have imagination, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> Because I thought you were going to end that sentence with bad boys, because that was the obvious, I, like, the, the, the year previous Sure, year. but yeah. no. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Fox apparently told them they refused to cast Will Smith and whatever. They fought back. Who knows if this is all true? Other interesting casting notes. The Secretary of Defense, uh, Reb Horn, whose performance I know you enjoyed, based his character on Oliver North. Uh, <laughs> Judd Hirsch's character is based on Dean Devlin's uncle. And Brent Spiner's character, this is a whole, like, festival of science fiction stars, by the way, isn't it, Dan? Yeah. Like, there's a ton of people in here who we love from other things we might talk about and have talked about. And will talk about. And will talk about. Yes, yeah. Uh, And so Dr. Brackish Oaken, who is Brent Spiner's character, was actually based on one of the visual effects supervisors, which must have been cool for him. Harry Connick Jr., I think not really recognizable without his hair, was originally to be played by Matthew Perry. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Would have been very different again. And then also originally the president was to be played by Kevin Spacey. Ooh. <laughs> oh. So they, they dodged a I don't bullet. Like that, I don't like that prequel to House of Cards, yeah, Anna. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a good, good bullet dodge there. Yeah. Dodged a bullet with that one. Also, apparently they originally conceived of the president as being kind of a bad guy or someone you're suspicious of. But... Once they got Bill Pullman, of course, he can't be a bad guy. It was congenitally impossible, Anna. Yeah. You can't make Bill Pullman the bad guy. That's it just right. doesn't work. Even in Ruthless People, <laughs> he's not bad. He's just so sweetly dumb. 
And then I think that I can I can leave the rest of this um, for our newsletter, except Dan. Yeah. This may be the only film. I hope it isn't. But it may be the only film we cover in which I get to say the line. <laughs> I think Hezbollah has missed the point. <laughs> <laughs> I am, of course, quoting Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> who is another one of the great things about this. Oh, film. another one of the great things about this. Yeah, and, yeah. and someone who has turned up at least once for us already. And I'm sure we will talk about it again and again because he is awesome. I know we will discuss the weird montage that happens in this movie mm-hmm. where oh, yeah. we see like d- people of, of different stripes, former warring parties working together, let's mm-hmm. say. And in, indeed, some people didn't like that. <laughs> and uh, Hezbollah really didn't like it. And the other thing they didn't like about it was they saw the movie as propaganda for the so-called genius of the Jews and their concern for humanity. Dan, response. So it is interesting because my memory of this film when it came out was that there were, I, I recall that. And in fact, I actually think the film had to be edited when it was released in Egypt and elsewhere for that particular scene, which we will talk about in a little bit. But the other thing was is that there was some controversy, at least within the Jewish community, about whether in particular the Judd Hirsch character was just a stereotype as opposed to huh. an actual character. But but hearing that Hezbollah missed the point, <laughs> I actually have I, I have come around to the view, let me put it this way, it's so charming and quaint to think that anyone thought that that was a controversy back in the day. Yes. Because watching this... I am struck by how Jewish this film is. There's some serious Jewishness in this film between Jeff Goldblum, Judd Hirsch, and Harvey Firestein. There's just no denying it. And, you know, there's some sexy Jewishness as well in Jeff Goldblum. So (laughs) I cannot be opposed to this film as a Jew, Anna. In that sense, you're making me root for it. I will read the full quote from Jewish actor Jeff Goldblum, as the Wikipedia (laughs) article noted. I think Hezbollah has missed the point. The film is not about American Jews saving the world. It's about teamwork among people of different religions and nationalities to defeat a common enemy. And Dan, I, I would say that, that Jeff Goldblum has succinctly summarized what the writers of the film want us to believe it's about. I don't always put the <laughs> the terms Jeff Goldblum and coherence in the same sentence, but in this case, oh, Dan. absolutely. Dan, he, absolutely. He, is a, he is such a nice fellow and, and quite smart and a little wacky, but... A little I, wacky. I believe but those, yes, yes. those were fairly cogent remarks. No, no, those were extremely cogent remarks. I completely agree with them. Yes, absolutely. Okay, now that we have gone through <laughs> maybe uh, 5% of what I had to say about the movie, <laughs> uh, let us move on to the movie itself. Dan, would you like to tell us about the plot? Oh, oh, would I, Anna? All right, let's start with Act 1. Nobody panic except for the Jews. Oh, geez, Dan. <laughs> so alien spaceships are coming. Really, really big alien spaceships, Anna. They enter the atmosphere and set up shop over popular tourist attractions in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles, as well as other global cities like Moscow and names that are not even mentioned in the rest of the film. We also meet the cast of characters. So there's President Whitmore, played by Bill Pullman, a Gulf War pilot who was elected president less than four years later. So really well done, you know, Whitmore. (laughs) Also his wife Marilyn and his daughter Munchkin, Yes, her name is actually Patricia. It is said, I believe, once. Um, I'm just going to refer to as Munchkin for the rest of the time. There is Connie, who is Whitmore's uh, communication advisor, I think. It's kind of vague. She just plays a sort of staff role. There is David Levinson, Connie's sexy-as-fuck ex, who, after eight years at MIT, is slumming it a little bit as a sort of cable technician. No, he just Julia- satellites and stuff. He's like yeah. He's using his degree, sort of. 
Okay. And playing chess with his father, Julius, uh, in the streets. There is uh, U.S. Marine Corps Captain Stephen Hillier, based in the L.A. Basin and dating single mom slash stripper with a heart of gold, Jasmine, played by Vivica Fox. I would like to note that the word stripper is used throughout the movie, so we will use that word, although... It's inaccurate. Well, she also says exotic dancer. I mean, I'm not sure. She how, also I'm- says exotic dancer. It's also not what the people who do that job prefer to be called, or at least I would defer to them as to what they'd like to be called. But they use that word in the movie. Yeah. And also has a heart of gold. Yes. Um, oh, heart of gold no matter what. Exotic <laughs> yeah. dancer with a heart of gold. Yes, exactly. And finally, there is Russell Case, an alcoholic uh, Vietnam vet crop duster who claims to have been abducted by aliens a decade earlier. I'm just going to note this was good character prep for Randy Quaid's actual personal (laughs) arc in the ensuing decades. Anywho, (laughs) President Whitmore doesn't want to cause a panic and uh, urges folks to stay in their homes. In retrospect, we know this was not the right call, but in the moment, I actually will defend this move, Anna. What say you? Well, Dan... If the past two years have taught us anything, it's that people can panic in their homes. (laughs) They don't need to leave their homes to panic. You mentioned a a little bit of the fuzziness around Whitmore, uh, his Mm -hmm. being a Gulf War you know, pilot and then very suddenly becoming president. Yeah. We could nitpick a lot about the portrayal of Washington in politics here. Maybe we shouldn't... Start. It's so bad, Anna. <laughs> it's so bad. Although I will say, one of the other nineties tropes because we, we leave film, politics pretty quick and then get into you know alien invasion movie. Yeah. But do you want to say anything? I I, I I will say two things. The first is is that there is not a single credible line said in the very brief period where it's just the politics like it's just laugh out loud funny and it's like it it is like literally 1990s cliche politics lines it's that but also it continues the 1990s trope which does continue but like i think the 90s was the peak of this of always going to the mclaughlin group yes um yes for the cameo of like to demonstrate oh we're we're operating in a grounded universe because we're watching the mclaughlin group and that makes me laugh because i guess by the 90s, though, it's like it was already a joke. I mean, it was already Saturday Night Live. It was already yeah. like he was having, let's see, put it gently, not the most relevant people on. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> my favorite line of the inaccurate lines, by the way, is at one point, yes. Connie, that's her name, right? Connie, yes. Is telling him he has to do something because people don't like it. There's been too much politics, too much <laughs> compromise. <laughs> What people often get upset about, Dan, <laughs> compromise. Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 Nope, nope, nope. I'm sorry. Anna, I'm suffering a little bit like, is it the bends where like you, you surface from a deep water yeah. too quickly? That is the, I am feeling the mental equivalent of transitioning from The Expanse to this film <laughs> is the way I would put it. I, you know, The Expanse, oh. oh, yeah, they're taking this seriously to this. It's a rough transition for me, Anna. I'm not going to Imagine Vassarella in <laughs> the Bill Pullman role, by the way. What I can imagine is Avasarala just like being one of the advisors and just slapping him across the face. Well, I can imagine her slapping the assistant being like, what the fuck are you talking about? Too much politics. Politics. It's politics. It's politics. We're doing politics. Anyway. Yes. um, The other thing I want to say is it does have one of the best like opening scenes of any big dumb movie, right? Mm -hmm. The, The shaking of the... Um, the moon. The moon plaque. That's yeah. really good. 
David susses out uh, from the cable difficulties that the aliens are using a signal carried via Earth satellites to coordinate an attack in seven hours. He and his dad, Julius, drive down to D.C. and tell Connie and the president that the clock is ticking. At that same moment, a helicopter trying to signal the alien ship over D.C. is shot down, so that <laughs> seems bad. <laughs> Whitmore orders the evacuation of the cities, but Air Force One barely escapes before the aliens destroy D.C., New York, L.A., and other cities that we don't see destroyed, but I assume are destroyed. Jasmine and her son barely survive by seeking refuge in a maintenance closet inside a tunnel and prioritizing their dog over the other humans fleeing the flames. To which I say, fair. <laughs> I knew you were going to stand up for the dog. Yeah. <laughs> which is, it was a, it's a cute dog. But, Anna, I have made it a point to not think too seriously about this film for the last 25 years uh, because there is a goofiness to the plot that that does have its charms but we will be talking about during the entire podcast on this watching what struck me was that the whole coordinating the signal via earth satellites makes no fucking sense whatsoever on two levels first of all there's no need for a signal it's a fucking countdown clock. All all the aliens had to do, all the captains of their ships had to do was before they left, like, let's synchronize our watches. Beep. Let's press that button. That's it. There's no more need for coordination. You've literally got a ticking clock. There's nothing else. And I refuse to believe these aliens lack that technology. Uh, uh, so I'll just point out, if you're using that kind of firepower, why yeah. do you need to be that coordinated? I don't know. Uh, like, you know. It's not like oh, they're going to escape. Like, if you start a few seconds here or there, a few minutes here or there, a few hours here or there... You're going to get the same level of destruction. Then, so I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. The second thing was, was that, again, the reason they suss out this signal is that apparently the aliens are relying on the Earth satellites to talk to each other. And how do I put this? They're a vastly superior technological race <laughs> landing aliens, you know, ships all over the world, and they don't bring their own satellites? I mean, like, seriously, what, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the alien procurement rules? I'm very confused about this. <laughs> and or why don't they, yes, or why don't they just, like, send out the ships in a way that they could, like, communicate with each other? Because the whole thing yeah. is, like, you can't communicate around the Earth. We get a fun little billiard ball illustration. We're talking know. about lines of sight on it. We're talking about lines of sight, yes. It, it, I, I, I love how Jeff Goldblum explains this as though, like, Okay, I'm going to need to draw you a picture. <laughs> the Earth is round. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you get far enough away from the Earth, it isn't that much of a problem. Like, it's really, anyway, right. sorry. And these are, yeah, no, it's, yes. So, uh, so anyway, my, in response, Dan, they, they were on a Mexican writing binge. <laughs> There's you know going to be some plot holes. The first rule of the Mexican writing binge is you don't change a word. Don't edit. Apparently. No editing. You don't edit the don't Mexican edit. writing binge. That is, That's I am right. learning a lot about the way Hollywood First draft, works. best draft. Uh, Everybody knows. <laughs> okay. I am kind of amazed by how generous I feel about this movie, especially comparing it to, let's say, Arrival, which I was had so little patience for. I was going to um, say. <laughs> yes. Keep going. And I was trying to think like what it is, and it, it, part of it is the movie is, and I hope we get into this more through the rest of Imbricary, is there's a kind of genius to how this movie is constructed. Like it's not, the individual pieces are fucking Legos, right? Like they're just mm -hmm. bricks. Yeah. Some of the Legos are, are better than others, like Will Smith's performance. Bill Pullman's mm -hmm. performance too. Actually, there's a lot of good performances yeah, there's movie. decent acting, yeah. especially given the script. There yeah. is decent. Yeah, not so, gonna not gonna push that. So you're yeah. building this thing out of kind of common materials, but somehow it, it's. I, I personally, I can't stop watching it. I mean, like you said, it's not. <laughs> it's 
not a great movie, but you're in for the ride, you know? Yeah. Like once it starts, like you're, I, it, two and a half hours fly by. It's true. It's a long movie, actually, but it, like it, it, it doesn't feel shorter feel that, than your average Marvel movie. It really yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing I will say, so I mean, we'll get to this when we talk about classic Emmerich tropes. The other thing that Emmerich does extremely well, and this is really the first film where I think you get this, is he has a proper sense of scale. Yeah, he really does make you feel the size of these ships both of these you say in the opening scene with the moon but also like the shadows creeping over everything it's actually an effective thing to watch it it does it it, it hits you yeah. i think i think you're right and there's an irony there because he he is good at giving you a sense of scale when it comes to the menace of the aliens mm-hmm. the actual impact of the aliens gets very short shrift yep <laughs> dan yep, is shaking yep, yep, his yep. head in agreement with me you mentioned all these cities get destroyed and they get destroyed very vividly destroyed. And one of the things I kind of respect about this movie is you see a lot of people die. Like you see it, unlike other movies where you see reaction shots and then kind of, but you you don't see the same people react, die, you know, Mm -hmm. like they separate out, they make the deaths kind of just strangers. You know, Harvey Firestein dies. Just right away. Yep. <laughs> he dies. He's a character we've met and developed feelings for, and then he dies. And then there are like other characters. Um, one of the- It's Harry fe- Connick Jr. Harry Connick Jr. That's a little bit later, but you're right. He's yeah. one of them who we meet and like, and then he dies. Yeah. But the fellow exotic dancer, <laughs> we don't meet very long, but she seems like a nice lady, dies. Like Anna, I- one of the things I always laugh in this film is, as you say, there's the the stripper friend who's Tiffany. She goes up to the building right below with the alien ship. The alien fires, and there's that brief millisecond where you see Tiffany crouch, like defensively. I will always laugh at that scene. I don't know why. It just it's, it makes me laugh every time. It's it's funny, and some of those deaths are yes, played for laughs. It's another thing that again I sort of like about the movie. Like there's just a ton of death, and they don't shy away from it, except in how people react. Right? Like, and even there, it's not, I think this might be the difference between now and then or whatever. It's not a traumatizing deaths, is the way to put it. Yeah, like there's no one, feels, no one feels any trauma from it. No one. Yeah, that's the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And watching it now in the midst of terrible international trauma, mm-hmm. like, I guess maybe before. In the modern era, let's say, it has been hard to imagine what that would feel like. And it was maybe easy to make a movie where there's all this death and people just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, it's a movie. It's an action movie. We know we're in an action movie. Right. And so we're just going to move on. This will be an interesting experience if we watch Moonfall, because I'm assuming there's going to be a fair amount of, you know, I, I'm not I, sure everyone's going to make it. Even Tomorrow War had some respect for the dead. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I actually... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even Tomorrow War, tons of people die, and there's this, mm-hmm. like, sense of, like, grief yeah, about absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. No one grieves a fucking thing in this movie. <laughs> nope. Nope, 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 nope. Not nope, even nope. the death of the First Lady. The First Lady dies for no real reason. It doesn't forward <laughs> the plot. There's... It's... She doesn't have visible injuries that they need to explain. She had internal bleeding She on had her. internal bleeding, <laughs> We, she could have lived. No one's gonna. No one's gonna like be like she shouldn't have lived. That's not realistic. <laughs> they just have her die. Yep. And then everybody's okay. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the the body count just gets racked up, and um, 
just no stakes. No stakes. All right, let's move to Act 2, Area 51. So a counterattack against the alien ships using the Air Force ends very badly uh, (laughs) because the alien ships have shields that can deflect all ordnance. Captain Hillier uh, barely survives after leading a small alien fighter through the Grand Canyon and then covering the alien ship through with a canopy with the classic peekaboo combat maneuver that we've all studied, of course, in, in, you know, uh, before. It works, and while he's lost his Black Knight squadron, he's gained an alien prisoner. Things are going even less well on the macro front, as the aliens have taken out most of the cities along with NORAD. After a big argument on Air Force One about what to do, during which Julius starts in with his crazy conspiracies, Defense Secretary Nimziki fesses up that it, hey, Area 51 is actually real, and the DOD does know about aliens landing on Earth in the past. So everyone goes off to Area 51. This includes Captain Hillier and his alien, uh, who are picked up by Russell Case and his Winnebago Armada fleeing the West Coast. I just wanted to jump in and, and let you know a little tidbit from behind the scenes, which yes. is apparently the actors didn't know if the Area 51 thing was supposed to be funny, <laughs> which speaks to the three-week Mexican writing binge problem, oh, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, I think to something we can look for in other Emmerich movies, which is that the humor tends to be kind of cut and paste. Like, it's not organic to the film. It's not organic to the characters. It's just kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? I think this is an interesting question. Uh, I, the way I would put it is intentionality. So, like, for example, yes. when Tiffany crouches, I don't think that was intentionally supposed to be funny. No. I think and it is funny. It's, it's very funny. It's yes. ridiculously funny. So, I mean, w- is that what you mean that, like, the humor in Emmerich's films is not planned? It's sort of, oh, you're laughing and, at the film, not and with And when the film. it's planned, it's a, it's it, it feels a little planned. Yeah, it or feels it, clunky. It, Yes. It feels a little clunky. It is a it's that to the degree that that scene is funny, it's because of the acting. It's because yeah. of Judd Hirsch and Bill Pullman. Like yeah. they make that scene funny. Yeah. But I can understand why the actors were kind of like, "What are What are we doing?" Right? Yeah. 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 Is this cuz it turns out to be serious, right? Like right. they have to go to Area 51. I do love Russell Case, however, in his Winnebago <laughs> Armada. I it's a great actually there's not a ton of like brilliant filmmaking in this it's it no but that is a great workmanlike but it's a yeah. great scene totally also i remember watching that originally and it was also a rare moment where the film surprised me because you see will smith was alien seeing what looks like a very long small group of things and i thought those were the alien i thought those were the aliens landing when i originally mm. watched it so it was again a nice pleasant surprise in that sense anywho once the president arrives at Area 51, they get the world's weirdest orientation tour, <laughs> led by Jane from Firefly and Data from Star Trek, during which we learn that the aliens use telepathy. I will add, yes, this film is a cornucopia of other sci-fi films. So when I say Jane from Firefly, Adam Baldwin plays one of the sort of commanding officers of Area 51. And Brent Spiner does a great job as Dr. Oaken in, uh, as well. And the first lady, who was played by Mary McDonnell, was, of course, President Rosslyn from uh, the Battlestar Galactica reboot. The alien- so borrowing actors as well as plots. Yes. yes. The alien pilot resists attempts at dissection and, through Dr. Oaken, <laughs> demands humanity surrender. He then tries to mind Oh, up- oh Dan, actually, yep. he demands that humanity die. Oh, that's true. It's actually kind of, it's, again, for a first draft, like, this is actually one of the better moments, right? It is. It's a, it's a legitimately creepy moment, is the way like, I put it. Yeah. Because it's, what do you want from us? And it's not to surrender. It is die. die. Yeah, you're right. That's correct. Sorry. So. I, 
Yeah. The alien tries to mind meld with President Whitmore before he's shot dead. While melding, Whitmore learns that the aliens... <laughs> <While> melding. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how else to put this on. During the melding. During yes. the melding. <laughs> Whitmore learns that the aliens are like locusts, going from planet to planet, consuming every natural resource, at which point the president decides to nuke the bastards. Anna, the only human villain in this film uh, is Defense Secretary Nimziki, played by James Rebhorn. And I just want to say, James Rebhorn deserves every Law & Order role he got from playing this dude, because he appeared on Law & Order a lot, if memory serves, as a feckless bureaucrat. That said, again, I hate to be that guy, but the notion that only when Julius mentions Area 51 that it would occur to him that maybe the Area 51 aliens would be linked to the attack... Since it turns out to be the exact same aliens, that's yeah. the other thing. It's not like, oh yeah, we have some aliens. Yeah, it's maybe the it actual would be aliens. You know, and like, aliens. and also we learned that like when the aliens enter the atmosphere, the like the ship that they have suddenly starts working again. You would have thought the Area Fifty One dudes might have notified the Secretary of Defense to say, "Hey, we have a problem here." Like, it, it it's just bad writing. Anna, I'm sorry. <laughs> It is. It's bad writing. It's horrible writing. Uh, it, 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 I Mexican writing binge. I, there we go. I'm going to start using that, by the way, I think. Like it's going to be a thing. Complain. Like, I'm sorry. I was on a Mexican writing binge. It's a rough draft. <laughs> I think we, you know, what we might have to do is, I, th I think this has to be taught in English schools from now, or like in, in English classes in middle schools from now on. Yeah. You know, the idea that there's a rough draft and then a, a you know, yeah. a, a final like draft. First I think you do we need Mexican writing binge. First Mexican writing binge, then rough draft, <laughs> and then final draft. They I call think. it free writing sometimes. <laughs> I'm going to, I think that's our new term for it. I don't like free writing. I'm doing my Mexican writing binge. Mexican which makes it sound, binge. it makes it sound like it might be some ethnic thing, but no, it's a location. It's just, it's, it, you're naming yeah. it after a location. Yes. Dan, you felt um, like the conspiracy theory part of this movie was significant. Well, let me put it this way. It was, the 90s were obviously, you know, there's an actual reference to the X-Files and, you know, the, the whole idea that, like, it was sort of, how would I put this? It was a conspiracy theory, but it was a sort of light, kooky conspiracy theory. Oh, yes, I guess would be the yes. way to put it. That <laughs> it was a gentle conspiracy theory, maybe. That was, that was the way I would Oh, those were the days. Those were the days, uh, yes. I will point out that for the people that believed in those conspiracy mm -hmm. theories, some of it wasn't so jokey. Yeah. You know? And also you had your, your uh, Timothy McVeigh's. Fair and enough. your Wacos. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> and, and, but, 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 but yeah. what I agree and, and what can feel almost nostalgic, right, is that what we have today is actually, you can draw direct lines from McVeigh and mm -hmm. Koresh yeah. to today. Like yeah. what seemed like aberrations and, and, and unusually fevered dreams of conspiracy theories in the 90s have now become part of mainstream discourse. That's oh, yeah. what that what's that's what makes this movie feel a little nostalgic when it talks about Area 51. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That is exactly what I was I was trying to say but uh, yeah. inelegantly in my Mexican writing binge way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move to Act 3. There's nothing you can't do with a 1990s MacBook. So, they nuke Houston, and while it improves the look of the city, Anna, sorry, mm. I, I, had to, I had to do that about Houston, the aliens are unaffected. Don't! 
On the upside, Captain Hillier takes a chopper and flies his, to his old bombed-out base. There he finds Jasmine and the other survivors, including, hey, the first lady who's been in Los Angeles the whole time. Everyone is reunited back <laughs> at Area 51, but the first lady's internal bleeding is too severe to stop. I just, I have to, again, I have to, it's such a bizarre turn. Like, it's just, <laughs> they find her, okay. I guess they have to find her because she's how the girlfriend gets to Area 51. Well, no, because remember, Will Smith is just looking for her. I think, oh, that's right. No, I no, no, no. Wait, you're right. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I will say this. I think the fact that they find the first lady maybe means that Will Smith isn't court-martialed or something for stealing the <laughs> chopper. Because again, that, oh, no. that was, that was that another scene that is made also, no sense. Yeah, that moment is also pretty great. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes no sense whatsoever, right? They have a rapidly diminishing number of military assets. And, you know, Will Smith goes and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to take this chopper. You and know, the other I, guy's like, I'm going to, no, stop or I'll shoot. And Will Smith is like, are you really? And the guy's <laughs> like, oh, you're right. You're Will Smith. Like, <laughs> exactly. you're, so, you're just so charming. That's what his expression Fine. basically says. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> Take the chopper. Yeah. Anyway, but I, I want to go back to the first lady dying. It's just yes. so weird. It's just like, it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. But, you nope. know, Mexican writing binge. I, all I can... All I say is I'm happy Mary McDonald got paid for this. That's yes. the way I would put it. Yes. Yes. So everyone is sad, especially David, who is drunk and depressed. And and shouldn't as, more people be drunk and depressed at this point in the movie, Dan? It's a pretty low point. So yes, you would think that like other people would be, you know, feeling down. But on a, after a pep talk from his father, <laughs> he devises an ingenious plan. He yes. will plant a computer virus into the alien mothership which will then infect all of the ships on Earth because clearly the aliens have Wi-Fi. Then Earth's remaining armed forces counterattack. Why? Wouldn't they need satellites, Dan? Sorry. <laughs> That's fair enough. Couldn't they just disable the satellites? Wouldn't that keep them from communicating with? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I will say on this, apparently, this I learned from Twitter, so I okay. cannot fully vouch for it, but yeah. the code that he writes is actual code. It's really? Python language. Okay. Well, also, it's a pretty cool use of malware. It is. Yeah. I will. I will grant you that. Uh, perfectly fine. Anyway, the point is, is that during the plan, the aliens will be knocked out by the virus. Their their defenses will. Earth's remaining armed forces will counterattack during that fifteen minute window, and humanity will win. Hillier immediately volunteers to fly the alien ship that they'd captured from back in the 50s up to the mothership. The president approves, the secretary of defense doesn't, and Whitmore fires Nimziki. Anna, we've talked about representation in The Expanse last week, and I do want to note that the best thing in this film by far is Will Smith's performance, uh, which is all kinds of charismatic. I will watch him as he after he's like crashed, like trash-talking the alien any day of the week. It is a ridiculous moment of cinema he's just incredibly charismatic but also i remember when he actually goes and rescues jasmine and they have this big cinematic kiss i think it was the first time i'd seen two african-americans cat you know shot that way in like a big budget summer movie am, am i wrong about that i don't know if that is a thing that i can specifically speak to the accuracy of like I'm not sure if that's tracked. I know, as I said earlier, that this was w one of the few big budget action movies to have a um, African American as the star, right? right? Like yeah. he is the action hero star in this yeah. movie. There's no like he's not a buddy. There's no one else. 
Well, Jeff Goldblum. Well, we'll get to Goldblum in a second. Yes, but he's not really the action star, no, right? Like no. he, he's the he's the brainy romantic lead. I would yes, argue, but right. um, although Will Smith, you're right. I mean, he's totally hot. Like he he's great in this movie. And I, I want to point out something else about representation, which I noticed, and I I'm pretty sure this is uh, worth remarking on. There are African American people throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Like in background scenes in the White House, there's yeah. like a black general, there's mm-hmm. like black, you know, aides, there's black, black officers, yeah. there's black yeah. scientists. Yeah. I don't think that was happening as much in 1996 as it was now. The slightly weird thing, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Russell Case's kids were clearly also supposed to be Hispanic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't, I mean, you know, we know from interviews that Emmerich at least now claims that he fought hard for uh, Will Smith to be the lead. I haven't heard him talk a lot about representation, but it's it's something you definitely seems, you know, clear now, yeah. especially because I was like thinking to myself, oh, well, there's a lot of, you know, like in the scenes in the when they're getting ready to fly their mission, there's a bunch of the, the pilots are fairly diverse, although mm-hmm. no women. Because I guess it we was hadn't the 90s gotten to that, that point yeah, I was yet. Say, let's not go overboard, okay? Come <laughs> I haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking to myself, oh, well, there's a lot of representation in this you know, flight squadron, but huh, I wonder if there's any representation really at the very top. And then we get, go to a scene at you know, DEF CON or whatever like the command place is. Sure enough, there's like a black general right there. Yep. And I'm like, wow, this is like someone thought about this. Someone and again, it was it was just striking because that is a great kiss. Like it shot like a cinematic kiss, and it was again. I oh, could yeah. be wrong, but that's the the first time I noticed it. Between now that, Will Smith and, and Vivica Fox, Vivica Fox, no, who's also general. Just, general does not the, that general, although great in his tiny role, the black yeah, general does not, does not get a kiss. No, no. And I also want to point out, Vivica Fox also looks amazing in this film. Yes. But the other thing I kind of love about this film is when Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblum's delivery when he explains his master plan because he does a great job of demonstrating his complete and total discomfort with all things military. And it, it really is perfect Goldblum deployment. <laughs> Dan, could you give me an example of Jeff Goldblum not being perfect? Just, I'll, I'll wait. Um, mm. Okay, I take your point here. Yep, that's right. The answer is, point. what is never, Dan? <laughs> What is never? Jeff Goldblum is always perfect. I think that he is a true joy in this film. He intentionally tried not to play the same character he did in Jurassic Park. Mm. Um, hair to split, I think. But it's a great character. I can see more of him. Fine. I've seen, I've seen a bunch of the Jurassic Park sequels just for him. So go for it, Jeff. <laughs> Be the sexy smarty pants. He is the sexy smarty pants. That's the thing. You know, That's the sexy right. whatever you call pants. him can be the same guy in every movie I will watch. Yep. So, <laughs> oh, he's very different in The Fly. That is a different character. Oh yeah, no, and he's also I'm also uh, the Hotel Artemis. He's great in that. Um, he's, he can play a different kind of sexy smarty pants. I do think this particular character happens to share a lot yes, with the enough. professor. So. All right, let's get to the closing act: the big battle using Morse code. Which is awesome. I, it, I This is the or like narrative I always think when they say, we're going to have to use Morse code to communicate. Like, you know, and I, I, in some ways, I think it had been done long before this. But it's like it, it's like Revenge of the Smith, Sith where Darth Vader says, no. And that's what you think of now when you hear his character screaming, no. I always think of Morse code. It, you know, when it comes to that, I will always think of this film. I love it. Well, see, it's, it's, it is actually genuinely clever. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, they, it's a bit that they stick with. 
which you kind of have to love it. They don't just mention Morse code. Like we get the dramatic scene of, and you know how much I love you know, dramatic <laughs> typing. That's true. This is, a, this is an exception to the rule. I genuinely love this dramatic typing. And they send multiple signals, so it's good. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, the Americans signal to everyone about their plan to launch a coordinated attack. Everyone is happy, except for that lost Belgian contingent in the Sinai, which we will get to later. Stephen marries Jasmine, and he and David say their goodbyes to their families. President Whitmore gives a rousing speech to rally the pilots, including new volunteer Russell Case, that sounds just a wee bit familiar. Am I right, Anna? I have so much to say about this. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge that I... So what I knew about the speech is that it seemed to me as someone who... You know, I I like Shakespeare, sure. It's actually, it's it's uh, it's fun. That's, that's very generous of you. <laughs> fun, fun, uh, fun read most of the time. Yeah. Once you get past the iambic, iambic pentameter, it, you can really, you know, sink into it. Uh, so it does sound like the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. Mm-hmm. And everyone talks about this speech as though it's clearly a reference. And it has some things in common. Like you and I both went back and listened to the Kenneth Branagh's version, yeah. which is great. Oh, um, God, yes. It's a great speech. It, uh, I mean, and his delivery of it is like, yeah, yeah. I wanted to go fight. You know, there we like, go. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it definitely has some DNA in common, not just the reference to the holiday. I would say, mm-hmm. like um, that speech. If you don't already know, is where we get we band of brothers, we happy few. Right. Um, and it is about a outnumbered force banding together, and then how they will all be united after this. That's the other kind of right. message of the speech. Yeah. Is after this, we will all be brothers. Yes. You know. Sort of similar to the lines in the film. Mm-hmm. And also, Imrick has said he based it on St. Christmas Day speech. He and Dean Devlin. I would hope so, yes. If you read contemporary coverage, Dan, uh-huh. yes, <laughs> there might be some revisionist history happening. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think apparently they... In, again, the contemporary stuff, he, De- Devlin seems to say like he wrote it really quick. And they never replaced it. And they only added our Independence Day because they were trying to lobby to name the movie Independence Day. And they felt like if they had this really cool big speech about it, then they would be able to have the name Independence Day and not as the studio wanted, which I think you will agree would have been bad, Doomsday. Oh, God, no. Independence Day is much better. Jesus. Oh, it's so much better. Jesus. The the one kind of cool historical thing here though is Pullman who mm-hmm. said for preparation he listened to recordings of great speeches not the St. Crispin Day speech apparently but some some others including uh, <laughs> including Robert F. Kennedy addressing the crowd after the assassination of Martin Luther King huh okay which you know seems it's like a great speech There's no it's a great yet, speech yeah, yeah. what could the connection be yeah right yeah this idea which is that it, I remember this in that speech which if you're going to go back and listen to some speeches Go ahead, do this, Kenneth Branagh, do this one. Mm-hmm. There is this weird, like, hiccup with the crowd at first, which is, you know, famous now, where he says, like, put the signs down, quiet, everyone. Like, he has to kind of gather the crowd together a little bit. It doesn't start off, right? like, smooth. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, apparently Pullman's note to Emmerich and Devlin was, I should have to, like, have a problem with the mic or something first. Like, there should be, like, a mm-hmm. little a little hiccup before I get started. Hmm. And I think that works. That's it's yeah. a cool pull, as they say. I will also say, as I, I'm sure our our listeners are aware, one of the other cute fast forward things in, in terms of that speech in contemporary 
science fiction is that in the HBO Max show Station Eleven, there is a traveling Shakespeare company. Uh, and this is an entirely new addition to the, the show. It's not in the original book. Someone auditions and they, they're supposed to only audition speaking Shakespeare. A character instead auditions by giving this Independence Day speech, um, which it's, is very it's, it's funny. It's like the Mandela effect. Yeah. Right. Like it is or the Berenstein Bears. It's it's like some <laughs> weird like thing. Like there's a glitch in the Matrix here. Yeah. Like where was this based on the same Christmas Day speech or not? It doesn't matter anymore. Nope. As far as we're concerned, <laughs> it's the same. Yes. All right. Let's finish out this plot. Steve and David fly the alien craft to the mothership. They upload the virus and the shields go down. Air battle. Uh, just as the spaceship is about to fire their primary weapon at Area 51, Russell Case and his Jan missile, sorry if that sounds dirty, <laughs> fly to the directed energy beam and blow up the ship. Huzzah! As the U.S. signals to everyone, again via Morse code, how to blow up the alien ships, Steve and David try to escape but are held in place by clamps. Thinking that's the end of the line for them, they light their victory cigars and fire their nuke. That dislodges the clamps, and Steve flies them out of the mothership just before it explodes. Thanks to Will Smith's daring do, they crash land near Area 51 and hug their adoring spouses before they have even put a dent into those cigars. And everyone lives happily ever after, except for the people who are living in the destroyed cities. Also, we don't see the dog again. I really... I was thinking that. Where is... Like, we don't... I, did the dog make it, frankly? I, I, I'm well, sure I the assume dog the dog... Oh, I think the dog made it. It's just, you know, it probably costs a lot to have the dog wrangle around set, I guess. Although, I'm, this is such an expensive budget movie. Budget is not an issue with this film. You're right. You're right. You're right. I don't, I don't I'm know. Gonna, I, I'm going to do some revisions. I don't think the dog survived the initial blast of L.A. Like, we see him jump, but we never see the dog. No, after. no, no. You, you see him after. Oh, that. you do see him? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. It's just you don't see him like in Area 51. I don't ah, know. right. Yes. Okay. Our eagle-eyed listeners <laughs> may have seen him, and I will await in the correction in the comments as I eagerly wait all corrections to mm -hmm. what I have to say in the comments. I just want to say that <laughs> the scene of them walking back from their <laughs> ship in their flight uniforms yes. is one of the unintentionally hilarious <laughs> parts of the movie. Like, sure, they are both super sexy, but yeah. there's something about it that's like, <laughs> also, the ship is crashed, like behind right. them. It, it does raise some awkward questions. You, 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 how proud of yourself are you, like right now? I mean, okay, sure. All right, wait a yes. minute. I would be pretty proud if I was there. Hold on. I'm oh, gonna but they crashed. Them. They oh, crashed. Okay, yes, yes, that's true. Fair enough. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess that's still pretty successful. But it's just they have such. They're so fucking proud of themselves. It's just like <laughs> it's not exactly any humility on the part of our heroes. No. It's really like. We fucking kicked alien ass, which just fit in with um, Will Smith's character, if not. Yeah, but no, and in some ways, it, to the extent that a character has an arc, it is David because yes. he goes from being, you know, like. He goes from zero to hero. He goes from zero to hero. Yeah. There's no denying that. Yeah. And yeah. I will say the other thing about this film is that Goldblum and Will Smith really are only together in the last half hour of the film. Right. And yet it's a nice buddy vibe. They got some good vibes. Between they them. should have done more movies together. Maybe they yeah. will yet. It's a really, really good chemistry between them. So I just want a couple of things to add about this last part, which is there is the kind of hilarious also celebration scene to match the all coming together <laughs> scene, right? So which part is your favorite, Anna? I know what mine is. It's the children of color waving sticks. <laughs> yes. Is that yours? Yes. It's so dumb. <laughs> it's too dumb to be offensive is the way I would put it. Because you see this kid waving a spear and he's clearly... I, I oh, it's not even a spear, I don't think. I think it's just like a, a stick. stick. 
I'm honestly shocked that like Emmerich didn't have like Africa like as a as a yeah. as a word saying where we were when this and was taking place. And they jump up place. and down. They're holding their sticks and jumping, and jumping up, up and, and down. down because apparently someone threw a really big stick at the ship, which is destroyed. I'm like, like no, it's just they see the alien crash and they're like, yay! It's just is that how we celebrate? I guess that's how they assume children in that part of the world celebrate. Is I waving guess. Sticks. I guess waving it's sticks. Just so bad. So we talked a little bit about um, uh, the, the faith aspect of this movie is mm. specifically, you know, as uh, the Jewish heroes. Yeah. Uh, meaning, I mean, of course, Julius and David, both mm-hmm. heroes. I actually wanted to talk about faith just a little more generally, just for a quick second here, because mm-hmm. I do think that's one of the few areas of the film that ring emotionally true as far as like in the midst of disaster. It's actually a lovely little scene, right, where mm-hmm. Julius is sitting leading children and a couple of military officers and the secretary of defense in prayer. The ex-secretary of defense at that point. The ex-secretary yes. of defense in yes. prayer. Like it's played for laughs a little bit, but also it's lovely. Yeah. Right? And it's, and I will say like in all seriousness, the line that hit me the most watching this film was when Julius tells his uh, David, you know, after your mother died, I stopped talking to God. And I will yeah. say Judd Hirsch nails that line reading. It really is. For a brief moment, you are no longer watching a disaster film. You're actually watching something about a character, ha- you know, admitting something. And it was that's it was, the other true emotional sort yeah. of point in the movie as well is that yeah. that scene could be in any great movie, right? And, right? and th- that's the way I would put it. Like for all the you know weird controversies, yes, uneven weird controversies about whether or not the characters were considered too, ter- too stereotypically Jewish. And you know what? I am fucking fine with it at this point. <laughs> it's. Good. This movie is good for the Jews on it. That's the way I would put it. All right. Well, <clears throat> Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this movie? <laughs> Anna, the aliens in this film are just as frail as we are, which means the international relations are exactly the same. Yes, there is IR in this film, and it is meat and potatoes IR. Uh, on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is just balance of power politics. In the face of a more powerful actor, the premise is, is that all Earth countries will band together and balance against it. They will fight. And we see this in the two ludicrous montage sequences that we have talked about already. But the first, and this is the one that I laugh at the hardest, is in the Middle East, where for some reason there's a British guy in charge. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but there's it's Lawrence a- of Arabia. Yeah, where, you know, he again, he talks about, well, we've lost the Belgian contingent in the Sinai. And I just, I don't know why I laugh at that. He also talks at one point about the Golan Straits, which does not exist, just to be clear. There is no such thing as the Golan Mexican Straits. Mexican writing binge. Mexican writing binge. I, I definitely believe they didn't change a word in that. <laughs> but at one point, they you see, like, the Iraqis talking to him, and then suddenly you see the Israelis with them. Yeah. And it was the idea that they would all, you know— controversial Um, at the time which was controversial at the time but like you know the premise is is that if the alien you know actor is clearly more powerful than all of them they will all band together and balance against it so yeah and i would feel bad about bringing up the expanse in comparison except that we've done that already (laughs) yes but we talked about this in the context of the expanse Mm -hmm. the the way that the expanse plays with the fallacy of this idea right like that we wouldn't necessarily band together that humans are not so smart as all that all the time there could be some buck passing there could even be some bandwagoning there's there's no denying these things but i I will say this i 
I can recall that realists have talked about. I know realists, realists who have been friends of mine. I know realists. About I'm friends film, with realists. Yeah. Yes, who talk about this film as a classic balance of power politics example. So, Anna and Dan, is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, the aliens are not dissimilar to us, or that's what the movie would have you believe. Bum bum. So there is a really obvious and pretty clearly intentional swipe at consumerism in this movie. You know, Jeff Goldblum is a recycling and cycling environmentalist who tells Connie that the reason he's going on this mission with Hillier is his chance to really save the world, not just recycle. And of course, the aliens are described as not dissimilar to us. In that moment, it's a reference to why the aliens want Earth in particular, because they have the same environmental needs as we do, temperature, air, etc. However, I I do not think Emmerich and Devlin are, are super subtle. (laughs) when not too long after that you know Whitmore does do his thing about they're like locusts who consume every natural resource and then move on Al Gore couldn't have said it better Dan (laughs) that is not a critique of capitalism however that is a critique of environmental destruction that's really centered on individual people doing it right locusts Mm -hmm. and if only we recycled more used paper straws, composted, like we could change the world. I would say neither we nor the aliens are quote unquote like locusts. That we don't do enough individual damage to ruin a planet, just living on our everyday needs. It is, Dan. It's corporations that do that kind of damage. There we go. I was waiting for this. Yeah, it's the top 1% that does that kind of damage. The rest of us don't put near as big a dent in, you know, the climate as the top corporations in the world do. This movie is telling a story that capitalism would like us to believe. That if we change our individual behavior, we personally can do something about global warming and that's all we need to do. And if we don't, if we don't recycle or don't have solar panels, well, then we fucked up. And meanwhile, buy green. Dan, for the audience at home, you are laughing at me. <laughs> laughing a little bit, actually. Why? <laughs> because how do I put this? You are doing a lot of work. Oh, I'm not. Film. Oh, this is not the film. Oh, Dan. Dan, this I is know. not the film. But look this way. Even your interpretation of what the film is trying to say. Oh, oh, come I think- on. They wouldn't have made. I mean, it's a, yes, it is a Mexican writing binge first draft. Okay. However... They wouldn't fucking made David like be so insistent about the recycling. If they okay, fair if enough. they didn't mean to make like some kind of parallel, right? Okay, fair enough. I will. I and will also, the line okay. "they're not dissimilar to us," yeah, like yeah. is really like a neon sign mm-hmm. of like I'm trying to make a point here, right? Okay, I will. Fair and enough. this is also, even if that's not intentional, this is very much the 90s kind of, you know, paradigm of what environmentalism is. Right. This is Earth Day environmentalism. Yes. This is like, if you buy green, if you use paper straws, we can save the planet. And individual actions matter. Mm-hmm. But real action has to be collective. Less like how the aliens take over the planet. Sorry. Real action has to be collective. 
a little bit less like the, whatever the aliens would do after they take over the planet and more like what they do to take it over, Dan. <laughs> collective action. Massive collective action, which is also what the humans do to defeat the aliens. I guess the aliens have some more hierarchical thing, but I'm not going to leave it this way. I still think we should recycle on them. Oh, I mean, I mean, I said like we definitely should recycle, but also like we need to fucking like have some serious <laughs> teeth in our regulations. We need to have some serious taxes on corporations that that don't, you know, help. And I think that we need to hold countries responsible as well. We've talked about this before. I mean, climate change is I mean, it's such a big and intractable problem that it's sometimes hard to even think about. And it's hard to blame individual countries even. Right. It's just so difficult to make people do shit, right? It's also an extremely complicated bargaining problem for yes. a variety yes. of reasons. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I'm not yeah. saying like, oh, you just tax people, you tax corporations and it it gets fixed, Yeah. right? It's just, I would like people to realize that we need to shift our frame of reference from, you. it will be okay if we all recycle. Yes, yes, we okay, should all recycle. Fair. All right, I see what you're saying. Yes. Sure. Yes, we should all recycle. But also, if we all recycle, that's not even going to do the trick. This like, is we need to demand more. Basically, what you're saying is is that the, the, the movie's message is the 90s equivalent of what we would call slacktivism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Fair. Okay, and that, that's Yeah, the fair. movie's message is that like, it's individual action, that if we each individually take responsibility, then everything's going to be okay. I think you That's also wanted to true. say something about uh, Vivica Fox's character, and I'm happy to talk more <laughs> about Vivica Fox. Uh, yes, Dan. Well, I think it's sort of interesting. I think that the movie is actually, you know, at its core and intentionally or unintentionally pretty capitalist and imperialistic. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to say with imperialism is that I, is that I think it's a pretty common thing in a lot of American pop culture to just make the aliens worse than we are. So that when we look at our own genocides, like, yeah. it's it's not so bad. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I did keep thinking throughout this, it, it's hard not to think about indigenous people a little, like. Yeah. <laughs> what I wanted to say about Vicka Fox is that it is kind of cool that she's an exotic dancer and she's not ashamed of it. Like when she has this interaction with the first lady. <laughs> Which is, again, just weird as fuck. But Which is going. weird as fuck, but also, yeah. like, mm-hmm. it is pretty funny when she tells the first lady that she's a dancer, the first lady at first assumes, oh, ballet? And then she says, no, exotic. And the reaction from Mary McDonald is, I guess, what even today would be a pretty standard example. She's like, oh, kind of like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, she didn't say anything, but her reaction. No, I think she actually did say sorry. Oh, yeah, right. She does say sorry. Yeah. And Jasmine then says, oh, I'm, my baby's worth it. Yeah, now, it is uh, yeah. super, super cool to like have someone own that. Mm-hmm. It is less cool in a way that this reaction is still one that's kind of rooted in some idea that being an exotic dancer is not a worthy profession. Because what you're saying is, see, I'm that's how great a mom I am. That's what I will do is I will sacrifice to, to go to even this to take care of my child. The way I would put it, which is normally your bailiwick on it, is that this is the one class comment in the entire film. Yes. Is that it's Mary McDonald is, is, is the first lady is clearly upper crust. Jasmine is clearly not. And, you know, again, also in, in 90s fashion, Jasmine is so charismatic and, and open right. that, you know, she does the work for everyone. So, yeah. Yes. Dan, for, for we were actually going to do something special for Emma Carey. Am I right? That is correct. So we're going to talk about for the month of Emma Carey, as it were. What Emmerich tropes are in this movie? So 
how do I put this gently? Like Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock or Steven Spielberg, there are, or John Woo, there are certain tropes in a Roland Emmerich film that seem to recur, that you, you notice again and again and again the more you really dive into his oeuvre. And so, Anna, would you like to lead us off by talking about, like, are there things that you notice well, in this film that, that did, we might there, see in Moonfall? I, we're gonna, there are definitely things we saw in this film we're going to see in Moonfall. I, I would like to point out that I think some of the things that we think of as Emmerich tropes just bleed right into sort of action movie tropes, but they're, they're action movie tropes because of Emmerich, yeah. right? And, and Michael Bay, I think the two people we can yeah. really yeah. like yeah. say this, but the running from explosions. <laughs> yes. The, the hero silhouetted against an explosion. <laughs> he does that great. He's not the first person to do it. Won't be the last, yeah. but this movie does have what I think is the only dog silhouetted against an explosion. <laughs> It's a great I, scene. I think I know why you like this film so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the dog with a scene where they escape from the, the death blast. ray, yeah, the blast, the energy, and yeah. um, there is the beautiful, beautiful scene of the golden retriever leaping into the hideaway, yep. just like, you know, John McClane. Like, it's so great. <laughs> I'm going to put a marker down here that we might see some of the same, ha ha ha, isn't pretend gay flirting funny? In other movies. That's possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is something that happens between the Harry Connick Jr. character and the Will Smith character, mm-hmm. which I'm going to give like a, a a read on it that, that may save it from its actual, like in its moment, what the humor was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. The, in the moment, the humor is supposed to be that they're not actually gay. Ha ha. Right? right. I'm going to say like, uh, I, I'm, I choose to believe that Harry Connick Jr. character was gay and that this is the comfort that they had with each other. That he could do this pretend flirting. I like that that retconning. That works. I know we're going to see some more intense casual sexism. I, I know that. <laughs> Again, not specific to Emmerich, but I just want to call it out. In this particular case, the thing that got my goat was Connie chooses her career over David Dan, and she was wrong to do that. That is something that the movie feels very strongly <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, that's not good. No. Nope. Super like it's it's like so embedded into the movie, it's like not even actually said, right? Right. Like, no, it's never talked about. Like how dare Connie decide that she wants to, to work, work at the, the White House. Yeah, work at the White House <laughs> as opposed to staying with David, like, you know, who's working at the cable company or something like it, it it never made any sense to me why couldn't david have moved down to dc that was like a it worked in the cable company dc yeah like exactly. i mean who knows anyway yeah. I, there is this weird thing that they would only mention once that i kind of now i'm curious about which is that apparently he thinks at one point that she's having an affair with right. the character the president with the character, president Bill yeah. i wonder if he just was an anti-war like you know possibly maybe if it was his character. All right, Dan, what did, what did you suss out So Emmerichan, this classic Emmerichan The classic Emmerich tropes, the moon, first of all. Like, again, as you pointed out, this opens up with the moon. I, I think, again, nice prelude to Moonfall. The idea of the sort of massive size and scale. I mean, this always happens in Emmerich disaster films. He really does get the sort of scope of the bad thing happening. It's done very well. Uh, I, I will tip my cap. Mayhem that carries almost no emotional weight whatsoever as we've talked about before. And then two last things that I do, I'm quite confident we're going to see again. First, the cuckoo turns out to have been right all along. (laughs) 
that inevitably recurs in in Emmerich films. Mm-hmm. And I, I we already see we know that's going to happen in Moonfall. I mean, like from the trailers, the, the we day know after tomorrow happen. as well. Yeah, exactly. And 2012, yeah. it's it, uh, it you know it, it's on all of them. And then finally, a divorced couple rekindling their love amidst the ruins of the apocalypse. We right. see it with David and Connie here. I mean, I think it happens a day after tomorrow as well. It definitely happened in 2012. Yes, there it it is in day after tomorrow. It is for sure in day yep. after tomorrow. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan. Oh my God! It's the pieces of those enormous spaceships falling to the ground and causing no damage whatsoever. Yes. No one. I guess well, the Earth is pretty empty, so maybe it is totally fine that these fifteen-mile-wide spaceships just <laughs> fall. This is a brief field, Dan. This is where we talk about stuff we didn't talk about earlier. What do you got? We've talked about a lot of what I was going to bring up, but a few things that are still, again, kind of salient to the occasionally, dare I say, sloppy filmmaking. So, first of all. We meet David and Julius when they're playing chess outside on July 2nd. The radio says it's 95 degrees out. Julius is wearing a sweater and David is wearing a fleece. Everyone else is wearing like clothes that are like for a 60 degree day. It just made no sense whatsoever. Wow, of all the knits to pick. Man. I know. Well, it was the first it's knit. A was tiny the way fucking I would put knit. It. But yes, it's the first knit. It's, it's the, the first, first knit. It's the first knit. Yeah. The. You know, if you want to repeat the stuff about the world tour, I mean, that's pretty like. I, I again, the Golan Straits made me laugh. You know, I, I, the the guy carrying the spear, or the the kid carrying the the stick, very funny. Again, the doctor telling David that his wife was going to die while David is carrying his daughter, like that mm. was again like a thing of like, yeah, that wouldn't happen. You know, just weird. Two other like sort of technical things. First, that stealth bomber that fires the nuke at in Houston, like you see the thing where he just sort of veers away like maybe about a thousand yards after firing the nuke. I don't think he's <laughs> gonna make it on it, just to be clear. You know. And and the last thing or two second to last thing, if the Area 51 spaceship was directly over Area 51 when they destroyed it, wouldn't it have destroyed the complex when it falls? I I hate to I know I'm sounding like comic book guy, but it just it didn't well, quite... the- as I said, in this debris field, there's a lot of debris, but somehow none of it falls on anything important. There we go, yes. And then finally, I mean, Anna, everything is just so dated. I mean, a president polling below 40%, <laughs> providing contradictory advice to his fellow Americans about an emergent threat and citizens not listening to him, that would never happen uh, now. I'm just, it's so crazy. Hundreds of thousands of people dying for no reason also, yeah. like people who could have been saved. Silly. That would yeah. never happen. <laughs> Anna, what about you? Well, I have dramatic typing. <laughs> Although, again, I forgive the dramatic typing when it is applied to Morse code. Like <laughs> the Morse code, we will call this the, it's the Morse Mex- code exception. Mexican writing binge Morse code exception. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, I appreciated Steve's computer in general. I believe I had that very MacBook at the time, <laughs> and I really liked his HAL desktop wallpaper when he opens up the computer and it says oh greetings yeah hi yeah yeah, greetings Dave Dave. or something yeah also I just want to note that when they open up area 51 to everyone they really open it up Dan like (laughs) everyone can go everywhere did you notice that like the children are in the scene with the alien spaceship in that hangar it, I'm not, they are. No, I don't like, think I did notice that. Yes, they just walk. They just like, I believe the president is carrying his, his girl. His daughter's there. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. And, and, and Jasmine's child is there. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. They just, they get to just go, like everyone gets to go everywhere. Just yeah. like, that's a far cry from what was supposedly the clean room, right? That they barge into. <laughs> that's right. 
That's true. Yes. Fair point. Also, I did appreciate at one point um, Connie changes into like someone's flannel shirt and jeans because some because because she was wearing too, a, a skirt suit for way before that. too yes. long. People yeah. are wearing suits, <laughs> like, and I will argue she looked good in the flannel. Oh, by she the way. looked great. She looked no, great. She looked great. Good, good for Margaret Colin. That, yeah, that and was speaking good, yeah. of, of continue, people continuing to like uh, have perfect attire and 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 whatnot. Uh, I usually call out movies for having women have perfect hair after the apocalypse. But in this case, <laughs> Bill Pullman's hair stays unmust. Oh, yes. Just un- completely unmust. Where I actually think he would look good with some mussing. <laughs> All right, I, and, and, and I wanted to ask you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, just a small note on this, which is I've always been happy that Bill Pullman got this role. Because I think up until this point, if memory serves, Bill Pullman... Had, his primary claim to fame in movies had always been the other guy in films. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I'm glad he got to be the guy in this sense. So that was good. It's, and it was career making for him in many ways. Like yeah. he, it beca- he became like, you can't make him the bad guy guy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Before I move on, it is, I, there is a point at which they take out NATO before a U.S. thing, right? <laughs> isn't there, isn't, isn't that, am I wrong? Uh, like, I'm gonna, I, I, it, I, it's Mexican writing binge on okay. what do you like literally the I, very I, sentence they've taken out NATO what the fuck does that mean I, uh, okay I, uh, agreed actually my first thought was like I wonder what Dan's gonna think of that <laughs> I literally heard them say take out NATO and I was like Dan what is Dan gonna say about taking out NATO yeah you're right like that, that NATO place yeah they took it out yeah you know NATO along with Moscow right NATO yeah all right Dan before we wrap up, any last thoughts, like feelings about the movie? You know, I have enjoyed this conversation. I think on a more that I actually enjoyed watching the movie would be the way to put it. As I said, I normally uh, like I normally have loved this movie as a cheeseball movie, but the the transition from the expanse to this was a little hard for me. Uh, I maybe I, I. It's funny. I think maybe I've been watching more junk even as i watch the expanse or something Mm. or maybe my capacity for amplitude is higher than yours Um, but i i yeah i enjoyed this (laughs) it as i said before it's two and a half hours long it flies by it Marvel movies, well, Marvel movies are now longer. They are, period. They're like three hours now, not two and a half hours. But this movie, it's funny because there are scenes that feel like padding, but they still fly by. Yeah. Like, and also the plot of the movie, we spent a lot of time on it, but it really is aliens come and then we kick their ass. Like, that's it. Like, well, they kick our ass and then we kick their well, ass. Well, yes, 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 aliens yes. come, we kick, they, they kick our ass and we kick the, their ass. Yeah. There is not a lot that happens, right? There's not a lot of happens of consequence. Yes, that's a yes. fair statement. I was trying to do the characters justice on. <laughs> no, oh, you you did, and I, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I want to. People might be expecting me to say something about the alcoholic character, so I will say it's a relic of the times, kind of like. <laughs> That he's just a, it's a funny drunk, Dan. He flies his crop duster after he's been, after he's three sheets for the wind. Isn't that hilarious? There was a time when drunk driving was considered like a punchline. Yep. The 90s, we were starting to get beyond that, but clearly, <laughs> like, Mexican riding binge. Mexican riding binge. On wouldn't it. a drunk pilot be hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to remember Mexican riding binge the most from this. First draft, best draft. <laughs> I'm gonna remember for yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna use it 
I'm going to use that technique. I'm going to argue it with editors. <laughs> Probably to no success. Anyway, Dan, um, this has been fun. Like I said, I think I enjoyed it. Not that I didn't enjoy our conversation. Yes. But I definitely enjoyed the movie more than you did. Mm-hmm. Up next, I believe we have Stargate. Yes, that's correct. Which our Discord community has pointed out that it's this TV series that really has the most love, that has the biggest fan base. But, you know, it started with started with the movie. It's Emmerich. It and goes it's back Emmerich. to Emmerich. Yeah. It's Emmerich. It's Emmerich Airy. And then after that, Day After Tomorrow. That's and correct. then we have Moonfall. All right. Until then, Dan. Keep this channel open. <laughs>